Now, if you were here with us last week, we went through Philippians 2, and we opened that up, and we looked at the value of Jesus Christ, the value of the greatest gift. And if you remember the very last part of that, one of the things that we talked about with the greatness of Christ was that he inherited a greater name, the best name, the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. You remember that? And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord to the glory of God the Father. Names are so important. And they always have been. Names carry great meaning. We name our kids meaningful things, a family name, a traditional name, uh, sometimes just based on the character and what we hope for that child. My name, Matthew David Round. Matthew David means beloved gift of God. And if you know me, you are not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Round means exactly what you think it means, and we don't talk about that as often because some of us live up to that better than we ought to. However, names have meaning. And the names that we give our children matter, but how much more so the names that God gave his son, the names that we read, the names that we read over and over during this time of year that we go to the point where we just skim past. We're going to stop. We're going to slow down to find just a moment of quiet here today because it's not going to be quiet for the next couple of days. Between the in-laws, the outlaws, the presence, the driving, the food preparation, take this time, the gift that we've been given of just a few moments of quiet before God's word, and we're going to think through those names. The name of of all names that we celebrate that birth in the manger. And so the first name that we're going to look at is actually found three times in this first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. One sixteen. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then 118, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, This baby is going to be called many things, but one of those is Christ. And I want to think on that name first, because it's one that we use uh, a lot. Our culture has turned it into the last part of a swear word, but it means something. The Christ is picking up off of the whole Old Testament's worth of promises. It's the counterpart to the Hebrew word for Messiah, the anointed one, the anticipated one. See, if you go back through your Bibles, uh, there is the idea of anointing or setting apart kind of built in to the lives of God's people. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. And it was this physical symbol that showed that you were set apart for a very particular specific task. And Matthew starts out by telling us that this one, this Jesus, is the Christ, the anointed, the promised one, the anticipated one. And that's why he ties this baby back to the history of God's people. This is Jesus, the Christ, who is the son of Abraham and the son of David. The Christ, the Messiah, the faithful fulfillment of God's promises is tied directly to all the promises that God had made for his people from the beginning. He made precious promises to David. He said, David, I am going to build a house for you, not a physical house, but a lineage, a ruling line of kings. And David, one day, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne like no other king before you. He is going to rule in righteousness and justice and truth. He is going to rule eternally like no other king can. He is going to rule the nations. We know what authority looks like. We know what kings look like. Kings come and they rule and they live for a while and they have a territory that they rule over and then they die. Or they're deposed and they're replaced by the next king. This king will never die. His power will never fade. His authority will be completely unchallenged 
And there's a precious promise that the anointed one, the Christ, would be that kind of king. And he would also be called the son of Abraham. There are promises made there too, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, as God comes to Abraham and says, I am going to bless you. Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants, children. Although you are old, well beyond childbearing years, I am going to give you children. And not only a child, but your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars or like the sand on the seashore. And Abraham, as if that wasn't enough, I'm going to give you a land. To you and your descendants forever, I'm going to give you a place. Not only to be called your home, but to be the seat of my glory. And Abraham, I'm going to bless you beyond measure. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. But here's the kicker. Abraham, in you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. How does one family bless all of the earth? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the answer to that. Because in the Christ, in the anointed, anticipated, longing of the prophets, we find the one who is the answer for all mankind. See, Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah of the Jewish people. He is not a regional, a local Savior. He is the anticipated and anointed one for all mankind. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, for all their distinction, has one thing in common, and that is there is one Savior for them. So when they call him Christ, it's not his last name. (laughs) When we read that idea of Christ, it ought to stir in us this reminder of God's constant, perfect faithfulness. That as He promised, He will be faithful to fulfill. Time passes, centuries pass, and oftentimes it looks to us like God has forgotten. Like the promises are long ago, far away, meant for someone else, some other time, some other place, some other season. Christmas is the time when we remember that these promises are not null and void, but that God makes good on every promise that he has ever made. But Christ isn't the only thing this baby is going to be called. And as we read through the narrative, we saw that Joseph decided that he was going to divorce Mary quietly. He was unwilling to put her to shame, which was actually a really gracious thing because to be found with child outside of wedlock was not only shameful, there was the potential uh, for the penalty being death. But Joseph is just and honorable and wants to put her away quietly, but he has this wonderful vision from an angel who tells him not to fear. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The second name that we're going to consider is the name Jesus. Great significance in that name. He's not the first, he's not the last to be named Jesus. It's again, if you tie it to the Old Testament counterpart, it's the same as Joshua, Yeshua. The name itself has a beautiful meaning. Kara mentioned it when she was reading it to the kids. The Lord saves, Yahweh saves. But if you're going to understand the name of Jesus, you have to understand what it is people need saving from. And to understand that, you have to go back well before the manger, well before the angels, well before our Bibles changed from Old Testament to New Testament. You have to go back to the very beginning. Because in the beginning, God forms man and woman, and he places them in the garden. And in the garden, Adam and Eve have perfect fellowship with God. Imagine that. Mankind walking in peace and fellowship with the God who made them. But there was a problem. Because sin enters the world. Adam and Eve choose not to trust the word of God. They choose to satisfy their own desires. 
And as soon as it enters the world, sin kills and sin separates. That is what sin does. Sin brings death and sin breaks that fellowship, that unity, that relationship with the God who created you. And I say you because the stain of sin didn't stop with Adam and Eve, but it gets passed down from generation to generation. And every man, woman, and child that's ever been born is infected with the same eternally deadly disease of sin. And unless you understand that painful reality of separation from God, that very real separation that we all live with from the moment we're born, you don't understand the need to have Yahweh save you from anything. If there is no sin, if there is no separation, if death wasn't the constant reminder that something is desperately wrong with this world, then Jesus makes no sense. But when you understand that the holy God who formed us called us to be holy like he is holy, to be right, to be set apart, to be distinct and different from sin, to be perfect like he is perfect. And unless you realize that we've all fallen short of that, every single one of us, then you miss out on really the depth of the beauty of Christmas. Because that baby was not simply born to be a reminder of good things. That baby was born to live. That baby in the manger would grow. Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. He would learn how to do things. He would walk in a way that was familiar to us. He would get hungry. He would get tired. And yet, he would never sin. To be like us, but nothing like us. And yet, at the end of that perfect life, that one singular perfect life that has ever been lived, there wasn't glory and rejoicing. There was a cross. Every time we speak the name of Jesus, we're reminded that that baby laid in the manger was born to die. That from the time he came into existence in the world, his life was on a trajectory of obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because the wages of sin, the price, the cost of sin is still death and always has been. But God, in his infinite, unimaginable mercy, said that something could die in your place. And we see the shadows, the beginnings of that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, where the people would offer bulls and goats and lambs. That was the, that was the beginning of that idea, that something could stand in your place. That when you sinned, something had to die, but it didn't have to be you. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the, all the anticipation built up by that law. Because in Jesus Christ, we don't find just another sacrifice. We find the final sacrifice. That is how a baby would save his people from their sin. Not by pretending it didn't exist. Not by saying they were good enough, smart enough, that they'd learned enough, that they'd given enough. But by saying that he would die in their place. And that he would give his perfection to them. See, on the cross, this great exchange, this cosmic eternal exchange takes place. And God treats the one who knew no sin as if he had lived my life and your life, which is full of sin. And instead, he looks on everyone who would look to Jesus for their salvation as if they had lived in his perfection. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This unfair, undeserved, 
unimaginable, merciful gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he is rightly called Jesus, Yahweh saves, because we are a people in desperate need of saving. And the final name that I want to think through is found in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why call him that, and why does it matter? Well, if we turn over to the book of John, which if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 1. This is what I like to call John's Christmas story. There's no angels, no shepherds. John leaves out just about all of the earthly details. But look at what he does say in John 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, this little baby is more than an anointed prophet. He's more than a priest to represent his people before God. He's more than a king that will rule with ultimate authority. He's more than a man who lived a good life, who died a martyr's death. He was more than an example of what love does for others. This one lying in that manger is rightly understood to be God, very God. And that is hard for us to get our minds around because how does God, who formed and filled the stars, lie in a manger under them? How does the God who feeds and fulfills every need of his creation grow up knowing what it's like to be dependent on other people? How does God die a sacrificial death? And yet that's what we see. This baby, more than a baby, more than a man, more than a prophet, more than a good thing, more than an example, more than a miracle worker, he is nothing less than God, very God. To understand him is to understand that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. And that although he stoops down and becomes like his creation, he never loses his deity. He never becomes less than who he is. You see it for just a moment in places like Matthew 17. As he goes and takes some of his disciples up onto the top of this mountain, and there in front of them, his glory kind of bursts through for the moment. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And you see this glory of Jesus Christ, and it puts them right on their face because they're exposed to just a glimpse of how majestic and how awesome he is. And that truth matters. All of those things matter. Because culturally and maybe even historically and traditionally, we would be content to celebrate a piece of who Jesus is. It's comforting, it's kind, it's peaceful to celebrate a needy young couple laying their baby in poverty in a manger. It's comforting to think about a good man who lived a good life, who did nice things for people. 
It might even be convicting to think of an example of someone dying in place of others. As you approach this Christmas, don't celebrate pieces and miss the whole of who we're talking about. We light these candles because they are more than just pretty things, because they are more than just tradition. We talk about hope because in Jesus Christ we have hope Hope that means that the separation and death that my sin brings does not have to be the final word in the story because God has sent a Savior. Peace. Because I was born and I lived my life at war with the God who made me. But Matt, you're a pretty nice guy. But I'm not who he's called me to be. Fallen, failed, temporary and looking forward to nothing but separation. I have hope because of what that child grew to be and what he accomplished on the cross. I have peace with God, not because I'm good enough or smart enough or studied enough, not because I go to church enough. I have peace with God because of what Christ has done. Joy. We live in a joyless world, a hopeless world, a world that is so caught up in controversy and arguments and Facebook fights. I know that ages me anyway because nobody's on Facebook anymore. Whatever your particular war is in, we're a people at constant war. Sometimes nowhere else more severely than in our own hearts. Peace and joy, joy that comes from knowing that we are redeemed through the work of Christ. And love, no greater picture of love. No human act of love that even begins to compare to the wonder of the fact that God would give His Son, His only Son, His only beloved Son, to rescue ruined sinners who lived in rebellion against Him. That's why we light those things that surround that one Christ candle, because in Christ, all of those things are not ideals. All of those things are realities for His people. That's Christmas. That is why these names give Him the name above every name. And in conclusion, as we wrap up here, that really only leads to one question. That is, who do you say that He is? What do you call him and why do you call him that? See, there was a time in his ministry when Jesus took a moment away with his disciples and they go up to kind of a retreat in the northern part of Israel. And as they're traveling, he asks them a very important question. He says, who do you say that I am? And there's all kinds of answers. Who do the people say that he was? Well, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And that's still the question. Don't forget who is lying in that manger. The Christ. The anointed, anticipated fulfillment of the promises of God. Jesus. Yahweh's salvation lying in a manger, born to die for the sins of His people. Emmanuel, God with us. God who is not far off, but is close and with his people. And so there's really only two things I need you to think about as you leave today. First of all, there's knowing more than the name. Because some of you need to know that baby. And I'm not saying you need to know more about that baby or that you need to know a different part of the Christmas story. Most of us have the head knowledge down pretty good. But when I say you need to know that baby, I'm saying you need to experience that salvation for yourself. I'm saying that there's some of you here 
who need to put down the idea that somehow you can earn God's love, that somehow on your own you're good enough, smart enough, strong enough, well-read enough, kind enough. Those are all good things. Family, friends, meaningful work, those are good things to fill your life with. The problem is they only last as long as you do. I'm asking you to consider Jesus, to know him for who he is, to do more than mentally acknowledge that he was, but to consider for a moment that if all of those things are true, that if he is the fulfillment of God's promises, if he is the Christ, the coming king, if he is this one who saves you from your sins, if he is God, very God, then it demands a very particular response. And that is the wholesale surrender of all that you are to him. The idea that he gave you your life. And he has called you to surrender it back to him. And in doing so, to gain more than you could ever lose. To find eternity with that coming Christ. And that leads me to my second one, and that is that we can be a people who are anticipating the Advent uh, because there are those of us who need to be reminded, who have taken those truths and put them to heart, not perfectly, but those of us who have found salvation in Jesus Christ. And we, we really do know that Savior, but busyness and life and the tyranny of everything that goes on around us at all times of all seasons, not just this season, but draws us away from the fact that we anticipate things that we look forward to. We love Christmas, and rightly so. We anticipate Christmas, and rightly so. We light the candles to count down the weeks of Advent, and rightly so. But we are a people who are living in anticipation of another Advent. That baby that came that was humbly born and laid in a manger is coming again, and he is not coming in humility. When he comes, he comes in power and glory. When he comes, he comes in justice and righteousness. And when he comes, he deals fully and finally with the sins of this broken world. And he makes his people like him. I'm telling you, you don't have to walk through this life dreading what comes next. Although what comes next might very well be painful, difficult, tragic even. Sin does that, it breaks things. But we live in hope and anticipation knowing that at the end of all things, once again at the right and perfect time in human history, God, very God, will step in and take ownership of what rightly belongs to him. And so even today as we sing songs in anticipation of tomorrow, we sing songs in anticipation of a better tomorrow. A time when we will no longer look back a time when we will no longer look forward, but a time when we will lift our eyes and be face to face with the one who calls himself Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. God, I pray that in the familiar we don't lose the truth, that in the tradition we don't lose uh, the wonderful reality that you made a way for sinners to be restored and reconciled to you. God, work in our hearts. Draw them to you. Bring us to a place of humility and repentance, broken over our sin, to the place where we can fall at your feet, knowing that you forgive sinners. 
that our past has separated us from you, but that at the right time in human history, you made a way for us to be reconciled. Lord, give us hope and joy. Give us peace. Help us to love, not because they're good things or nice things, but because they're what you have given us. We praise you in songs and in stories. We worship you in every way and everything that we do because you are worthy in this time of year and in every time. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.